Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Fertility Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kenan Omertag. With me, as always, is Corey French, fourth-year medical student handling all the behind-the-scenes action. Today is a special day. We've got um, Dr. Christopher Lewis, pediatric endocrinologist here at the St. Louis Children's Hospital at Washington University School of Medicine and co-director of the Transgender Center at um, St. Louis Children's Hospital. Good morning, Chris. Morning. Thank you for having me, Corey and Kenan. Yeah, man, it's great to have you. Our careers have kind of grown together. We've worked a lot together on a lot of same issues and championed a lot of the same causes. So it's cool to have you here talking with us today. Um, you know, this is, I wanted to kind of just get started and wanted to just kind of, I don't, I don't really think I know the story of um, kind of how you got to where you are today. So can you give us a little window into your background and how you got to St. Louis? and into pediatric endocrinology? So during my residency at WashU, um, I quickly learned that I wanted to do endocrine. And it was during my advocacy rotation as a second year resident, which is, uh, was at the time was run by Dr. Sarah Garwood in adolescent medicine. She had gave me the opportunity to uh, shadow a local uh, group for the parents of transgender youth called Transparent. Um, None of the other residents had ever gone to uh, sort of shadow and see what this group does. Um, And so I I was open to the idea and I went to it and they knew I was a resident. And so they catered their discussion predominantly around access to care, medical competency, um, quality of care in the mid and not just St. Louis, but Midwest at large. And I quickly learned about the significant health disparities that exist among transgender youth and young adults. Um, and realizing that I was going into a field of medicine that deals with hormones and has a role in that uh, aspect of transgender health, I, at that time, sort of sparked an interest. Um, I started to cultivate that interest. At the time, I did not realize that me developing this this interest in this niche of medicine within pediatric endocrinology would result in me uh, establishing the transgender clinic a couple a few years later Um, but that's how it unfolded was me having this interest realizing that there was a aspect of care that is lacking in the region that i'm in and realizing that i can impact that um, is sort of what uh, stimulated uh, me going down that path. Um, and so it was with the support of uh, certain leaders within uh, St. Louis Children's Hospital and pediatric endocrinology that uh, supported me throughout that, that I was able to open up the transgender clinic with Dr. Garwood, uh, literally the day after I finished fellowship. So can you back up? I'm curious, what prompted you to go into pediatrics from the beginning? Well, I was actually between neonatology, pediatric endocrinology, and uh, adolescent medicine when I was in uh, later residency and, uh, or sorry, early residency and later sort of med school. Um, I, the thing I liked about endocrinology was the complexity of care and the acuity of care that you can see somewhat in NICU. Um, but you got to have more uh, long-term 
follow up with patients and really develop that relationship and not just a psychosocial manner like you would in adolescent medicine, but also with the more complex aspects that I liked with uh, endocrinology. And so endocrinology just sort of blended the aspects of the fields of medicine that I was interested in, um, that I liked, and removed some of the aspects of medicine that I didn't like um, by going through the various different uh, clerkships and rotations and getting an exposure to all the different options I had after residency. Was, was your experience, so Dr. Garwood gets you plugged in with Transparent, was that your first kind of foray in um, taking care of patients or, you know, their parent or, you know, talking to parents of transgender youth? Or had you kind of had some experience previously, maybe here and there, or had something organized in the past? So I think at the time that would have been 2011, 2012, something like that. Prior to that, I don't think any major or very few, if any, major medical institutions were providing enough transgender, let alone LGBT uh, exposure through residency and or uh, medical school. During my medical school, I received no uh, specific transgender health uh, education. And I do not think either throughout my residency, except through the advocacy rotation. And so I would say, yes, that was my first, uh, career associated exposure to it. I think most of the providers that are practicing nowadays, when they were going through training, the only experience that they had with transgender persons is personal um, or through anecdotal things that happened with patient care that they came in direct uh, contact with and not so much in a formalized manner so that they're getting the training and education to take care of a patient population that does have a uh, pretty significant health disparities. I mean, my experience was similar. I didn't in med school from 2000 to 2006, residency 2006 to 2010 in Atlanta. I got, there was a little hit here and there in your, you know, in the clinic, you would have a patient um, who, you know, maybe had a gynecologic issue that um, happened to be a trans male. Um, That was about, there was no, lecture on cross-hormone tre- or gender-affirming treatment. There was no uh, formalized uh, education in the curriculum. And everything that we've kind of done over the last 10 years is kind of on our own and learning on our own. One of the unique features about doing uh, educational sessions about transgender health is that frequently the lower you are in sort of the hierarchy or totem pole of medicine, the more you actually know about transgender health compared to <laughs> the ones that are theoretically higher up in train in training yeah. or expertise. And so like the feedback I'd get from attendings and faculty is that some of the lectures I gave were in too much detail, too complex. I needed to bring it down to like more trans 101 while the same lecture, I would get uh, feedback from a medical student that it was too basic. And 
Right. That's sort of something you don't yeah. typically see when you're doing uh, medical education uh, lectures. Yeah, it's interestingly generational. I mean, I think that that's even shifted from the time that I went through the preclinical curriculum a couple of years ago now um, up to now where it's we've changed our curriculum, but it's more of an integrated discussion within it. Um, we didn't, I know we didn't have a lecture actually from you, Dr. Lewis, um, during our curriculum. And it was sort of scattered throughout the, the elements of, you know, LGBT healthcare and transgender healthcare in general, and more or less relegated to lunch talk experiences rather than formal curriculum. I think um, something that's really interesting to me is that you your daily practice, um, I know you are co-director of the Pediatric Transgender Care Clinic, and you're also director of the Disorders of Sexual Development Clinic. So I wanted to ask you what a day in your life looks like at this point, what what you do on a daily basis. So, so I'm hired on as a clinical educator, and so most of my time is either dealing with medical education and training of med students, residents, and fellows, um, or I'm in clinic myself. Uh, so I have on a weekly basis, anywhere from four to seven clinics a week, which includes a procedure clinic where uh, I place hormonal implant devices. Um, and each clinic, when you say one clinic, that's a technically a half day clinic. So if you say you have six clinics that week, then that means full three full days of, of clinic. I have a max cap of around seven to eight patients per clinic. And uh, I have two of those clinics on Tuesday afternoons and Wednesday mornings are dedicated only to transgender patients. And then the rest of my clinics are generally uh, any sort of endocrinopathy that you could send someone to go see for pediatric endocrine. Um, I do, because of the need, we, I do have some return trans patients slip into my general endocrine clinics um, so that we are not having as high of wait times. And then our intersex or differences of sex development clinic, that is once a month on Wednesday morning. So once a month, it does replace one of the transgender clinics. Uh, so we see that in a, both the transgender clinic and the difference of sex development clinic. Uh, those are both multidisciplinary clinics. So that means during those clinics, I'm not just taking care of uh, the one patient. I'm also trying to coordinate care and uh, collaborate with all sorts of different specialties, whether that be genetics, urology, psychology, psychiatry, reproductive endocrinology, OB-GYN, um, or a slew of other different fields that I work with to, to help take care of this patient population. Yeah, and I'm interested in that, the, the multidisciplinary nature of, of what you do and how, how it has been to, to make that into a clinic and how it's been to bring all these people together. So I, I think there's a lot of well-documented research that shows that multidisciplinary teams take better care and provide higher quality care for patients uh, with any complexity or any chronic medical condition. Um, so when we were developing the transgender clinic and the DSD differences of sex development clinic, uh, we knew it was going to require the involvement of several 
different uh, divisions and departments. Uh, so we reached out to those departments and gained interest in the ones that uh, we felt like were very important to have in the clinic and not just ones that we could rely on sort of remotely needed to be with us. We collaborated with them to uh, find the providers that would are wanting to work with us in this patient population and could have the feasibility to uh, do so in an outpatient setting. And we, I met with the various surgeons and medical providers and told them this is what my vision is over the next few years and this is what I'm shooting for and I'm wanting you to come along with me. And so it, it seems like for the vast majority, uh, they were eager to jump on board. And while there's some hiccups along the way that every provider and department had to and division had to navigate, uh, I think as time goes on, the quality of services and the diversity of services that we provide just continues to grow for both of those patient populations. So on a typical Wednesday, um, say a patient comes in, um, what providers are they seeing on that day? So if we're talking about the difference of sex development clinic, um, it is going to be based off of a combination of what the services that that specific medical complaint uh, or medical condition would warrant. So if there's a need for urology, then they're going to be seeing urology. If, if there is no, because of the diagnosis or other reasons that they do not need urologic assessment, then urology is not going to be there. But I would say the maximum amount that someone would probably see providers on one day in the multidisciplinary DSD clinic would be psychology, endocrinology, urology, genetics, and gynecology all at once in, in one day. Um, I think that's the, the max amount that people would probably experience. If we need to have other services like psychiatry or reproductive endocrinology, some of those topics may be introduced by gyne, for example, may talk about some fertility stuff. But then if we really need to loop in more detailed discussions, we're going to be re uh, referring them to be seen by Kenan or some other provider to discuss those things in greater detail. So those visits are pretty lengthy, um, but it, we have patients that are coming from multiple different states. And so it's easier for not just us, but also for the families to all provide on the same day and then uh, go over all the various details that we need to for that patient's care. After DSD clinic, all the providers that were in clinic and has a meeting where we talk about all the patients individually and all get on the same page and make sure we all have a clear plan moving forward. And then we talk about the next month's clinic to establish which providers are going to see which patients so that things can be as coordinated as possible. When we're talking about uh, our transgender clinics that happen on Wednesday mornings, so when a new transgender patient contacts our transgender offices uh, to be seen, our case manager, Jamie Reed, does an initial intake triage where uh, Jamie will talk to the patient and to the family about sort of 
what their needs are, what services they're seeking, what ways we can help them. And based off of a conversation that usually is in the ballpark of 30 to 60 minutes, Jamie is able to determine which providers need to see this patient and then coordinates the various scheduling services to have this patient seen. Now, sometimes that may be seeing all those providers on the same day. Other times that serve, the, that coordination of care may not be necessary. They may be seen on, on different days. Um, but our goal is to provide the patient with the opportunity to have access to as many services as possible. And for a transgender clinic, that usually is going to include a combination of adolescent medicine, endocrinology, psychiatry, and psychology. If there are, uh, for our older patients that are above 18 years of age, if there's surgical needs, we loop them in with that. If there's uh, speech therapy, uh, dermatology, uh, or other concerns that we need to coordinate, uh, we do that as well. Um, and, oh, and gynecology, I forgot to mention, is also another uh, service that is present in clinic that we could coordinate to have on the same day for our transgender patients. So obviously, clinic and clinical cares, I mean, you described it, you're hired as a clinical educator, you get paid to see patients, you get paid to educate. That's how you earn your keep. What is, I mean, I think I, I think we all know the answer to that. I think Corey and I know the answer to this, but I'm really curious for the audience. What is your passion right now? So my, my goal is to provide a center of excellence. They already have sort of given us that title, even though I don't personally think we live up to it. I think there's a lot more that we can do from an advocacy standpoint, community outreach standpoint, research standpoint, and even clinical care standpoint that WashU can do to improve the, the services that we provide to our transgender uh, community that uh, would actually need to be done to meet that standard of having a center of excellence. Um, and so... I think all of those things need to be improved upon, not just by my, by the the center at large. And so I would say those are mm -hmm. those are really what I'm I'm focusing on right now from a transgender health standpoint. Uh, I mean, some people have called me like the gender doctor because I with WashU because I focus on DSD and intersex. So uh, a DSD intersex as well as transgender patients. And I would say that is. My passion. I, I do really want to make sure that this patient these patient populations, which are not mutually exclusive, there is a tiny bit of overlap, uh, but uh, generally people do not understand the complexities of care that involve taking, uh, making sure that people in this community get the, the care that they deserve. And you talk about advocacy. Are you seeing more employers provide coverage for gender affirming care amongst your patient population? I will answer that by saying that state or federal based insurance companies generally provide higher rates of coverage than private mm. or employee based insurances. Um, we have to do a lot more mm. appeal letters and a lot more um, navigation of insurance coverage and prior authorization to get things covered for people who are not federal or state-based insurance. I guess there are probably 
laws that allow that to be broader in those federal and state employees as opposed to the private insurance, which is kind of the employer is just, yeah, you know, the employees have asked for it, so we'll cover it versus the employees haven't asked for it. So I guess we don't. Need yeah, to some uh, private insurances uh, will say things like, well, the policy or group that this patient belongs to has just not included these services into uh, their repertoire. Um, Other things that we'll say is some insurance companies still have uh, that there are no coverage for these services, period. Um, So there's uh, still a a wide variety of, of coverage details that people can encounter. Do you find that that's particularly challenging with pediatric patients? I mean, often they're on their, I mean, they're normally on their parents' insurance yes. as well, right? So that depends on what's, what therapies you're looking for. Um, pubertal suppression agents that we use in kids who are going through puberty too soon, as well as in cancer patients to preserve fertility, uh, when we try to use those agents in transgender health to put puberty on pause to allow an individual to explore their gender identity and their desired outcomes before starting irreversible therapies such as estrogen or testosterone, those therapies are, are quite expensive. Uh, there's only two forms, injection and implant. The injections are one, three, and six-month formulations that range in price from two to $10,000 per injection. And the implant is about uh, somewhere in the $33,000, $34,000 range for the pediatric form. Um, so obviously, that is cost prohibitive for the vast majority of the population. Um, so we do need insurance coverage for that. And Uh, So we do have to navigate that aspect a lot. When it comes to estrogen and testosterone therapy, there are different formulations for that. There are some forms that are much, much more uh, cost pro uh, uh, that allow patients to go through those therapies with relatively little out of pocket costs like testosterone injections and estrogen pills or patches are generally going to be much more readily affordable for the general population than any other therapies will be. And so those are not as hard to get covered because there's not as much a cost burden for the uh, insurance company to cover them. Uh, So I can generally get by with estrogen and testosterone, gender affirming hormones for patients. But when it comes to adjunctive therapies that families may be in need of, um, those can be a little bit more complex. You know, on on that topic, I know you mentioned a little bit of irreversibility and and you talked a little bit about using GNRH agonists, estrogen and testosterone for your patients. And so um, in that setting, just I wanted to know how you encounter reproductive health. So fertility is something that we talk to every patient about at every single visit. From the very first time that you see us, one of the discussions we're going to be talking about is family planning and fertility. And then that those discussions are documented heavily in our notes. We know that being on hormones from outside the body can impact fertility potential. Um, we know that uh, now that compared to in the past, that it is not a all or nothing sort of approach. Dr. Omertag and I had a, a, a very 
amazing case just this past summer where we had a patient who was suppressed. Uh, so this is a, uh, a trans male, so assigned female at birth who identifies as male, mm -hmm. who was uh, their puberty was suppressed uh, in the very beginning stages before they were able to ever undergo menarche or have their first period. They were suppressed for a few years until they were ready to and met uh, eligibility and readiness criteria for starting testosterone, but they wanted to ensure that they had fertility options in the future. And so me, I'm not gonna go into all the details, but uh, predominantly Dr. Omer Tog with a little bit of my assistance uh, was able to take care of this patient so that we were able to bank, set, I can't remember the exact number, I think it was, high teens, low 20s uh, eggs in this patient who had yep. never undergone menarche before. Uh, in the past, people would tell, mm. have told this individual that they needed to come off all hormones for several years to even have a shot at having biological children in the future. And so as technology, especially artificial reproductive technology advances, uh, the options that exist for trans persons who have undergone uh, hormonal intervention, it just continues to improve. And so I would say that is something that, like I said, that we talk about every day to our or every visit with our patients. Um, and we try to make sure that they get looped into the services that WashU can provide to help ensure that they have preserved fertility. That was a pretty, that was pretty, uh, that was a good case, and this is highlighting the fact that how, how much uh, reproductive endocrinology uh, overlap there is with pediatric endocrinology. I, we talked a little bit about cost earlier as well for for just hormonal therapy, but um, do you find that that is challenging as well when you're talking about fertility preservation in the setting of of um, starting cross hormone therapy? So when we talk to our patients and families about fertility preservation, about three to five percent express interest in biological offspring in the future of trans youth and young adults. Mm -hmm. If you were to ask their adult counterparts that are 30 to 50 years of age, that number shifts drastically to above 50 percent. Uh, so when I'm talking to families wow. about this, I'm saying, the reason why this is important is because we're making decisions soon, if not today, that have impact on what options we have in the future. Um, and so even though you may feel like there's no desire for those things today, some people's thoughts and feelings on matters do change and evolve over time. And so we just want to make sure that you have had full informed consent before moving forward with anything. And so the, the main reason why people do not elect to move forward with REI or fertility preservation is predominantly desire. After that, it is, it is mm. going to be financial limitations. Um, I, I think Dr. Omer Tog would be better to answer the second half of this question, but, ba but briefly, um, when families do then uh, decide that they do want to undergo fertility preservation, first off, there is a dichotomy difference between fertility preservation for our trans men versus our trans women. Um, so, and, I'll, and mm -hmm. I, I think Dr. Omertal can also go into that in better detail than I could also, uh, but there is a, a burden difference for those two population groups. 
And so when families are interested in this and they meet with a doctor to talk about fertility preservation, for those that elect not to move forward, it is almost always because either their insurance wasn't going to cover it or they didn't feel like they would even if there is some form of coverage that they would still would not be able to uh, manage the financial burden. Um, I don't know how high that percentage is um, off the top of my head, but uh, I do know that it is still to this day, probably one of the major factors driving uh, how people decide to move forward. You're right. I mean, when they come for people with sperm bearing tissue, um, a lot easier, less invasive, less expensive um, uh, to bank sperm as opposed to people with egg-bearing tissue, which requires expensive medication, an outpatient surgical procedure, um, several weeks of, of treatment just to uh, preserve eggs. So it is there is a difference just inherent in the, the ease of collecting the gametes. Um, most people, you know, the conversations I have with them are about procreative counseling, really. Um, most of the people that come in there, you know, there's some selection bias, I guess. Um, but most of them just want to know what their options are and what the pros and cons of are. And we're pretty candid about cost, pretty honest and upfront about it. Uh, people pretty much understand that. And, I, we're seeing an increase in the number of people who are pursuing egg freezing. Um, the amount of people who are banking has always kind of been steady, um, but we are seeing more takers on the egg freezing part. That's interesting. What do you think is driving that increase in uh, moving forward? I think it's okay. more volume. I think if you just have, you know, if you have 10 people coming through and usually two people bank, and well, now you've got, 20 people coming through. So four, five, six, you know, more so people will bank. So I think that's, I, it's more of just a volume thing. Which everyone is also highlighting that else. increased access to care and increased awareness of services, which is another huge disparity right. that exists in the U.S. with mm-hmm. trans health. Right. And, I, you know, Absolutely. I think, you know, we're trying to do our part as clinical educators to incorporate these pieces into the curriculum. And I think that's, we've seen that happening um, with time. It's and how it's being done. Um, but I wanted to ask, how do you do it in the, what is your approach to doing it in the community? How, how, what are you obviously working with parents and other organizations, but like a grad, do you have like a organized approach to educating the community? It depends on what subjects you're talking about. Um, we, we, what, it, it, for the services that we offer in our clinic, um, we have offered things such as education liaison, as well as community uh, sort of lectures and, and sessions with our uh, case manager and nurse coordinator. Predominantly, that is not directed to the transgender community itself as it is to providers and other medical personnel that are helping to take care of transgender patients where we're trying to improve cultural competency and medical awareness. Um, I I don't think the transgender community needs me 
to educate them so much as about their health as the sure. medical community needs to be educated about trans health. Um, we do participate in uh, local and regional uh, and, and also national uh conferences where we do uh, various education topics. Uh, I know Ken and I did one about fertility preservation. I've done others about menstrual management and uh, creating a gender affirming environment at uh, a few and and overall transgender health at several other uh, regional and national conferences. But uh, when we're talking about like local involvement, really that is collaborating with local uh, groups and leaders within the transgender community. So with like MTUG, Metro Trans Umbrella Group, working closely with them as well as uh, transparent, uh, working with those leaders to make sure that the services that we're offering are the services that the trans community is looking for and eliciting feedback from the community about ways that we can improve the quality of care that we are providing. The education liaison role that I mentioned, that is really going to the schools on behalf of our patients to improve the environment that that person is existing in that region of their world. Um, so the benefit of that is even though we're going on behalf of patient X, there's likely other individuals within that uh, academic setting or institution that would then also benefit from any improvements in policy or uh, practices that are going on within that educational environment. So I got to, so this is where I just got to ask, um, you know, we've talked a lot about reproductive health. We've talked about testosterone, we've talked about estrogen. So to the question, what do you wish you learned or remembered from your OBGYN rotation as a medical student? Um, oh, the cop-out answer is, is everything. I wish I remember absolutely everything that I ever <laughs> came across when I began because I feel like it would have benefited my training. I mean, I'm also a little biased because when I was in medical school, the two fields that I was between at that point was OB-GYN and pediatrics. And I ultimately went with pediatrics. Um, but <laughs> I honestly feel like everything that I came encounter with during my OB-GYN rotation uh, and clerkships uh, have popped up at multiple times throughout my time, just not just at residency and fellowship, but almost every day when I'm talking to families about STDs, vaginal uh, atrophy, when we're talking about um, fertility potential and how these hormones affect sex drive and everything that I talk about, I feel like has some slight, uh, if not complete involvement with OB-GYN. Um, and so that's why I felt like it was so important that I bring in experts from reproductive endocrinology, which is, a, as everyone's aware, a subspecialty of OB-GYN, as well as OB-GYN itself into our clinic to provide those expert services that we need to cover that realm of these individuals' health. Um, if I could pick one topic within 
Obi-Gyne that I could uh, have just instinctively automatically remembered everything about, I think it probably would be uh, fertility um, because that is one of the things that I feel like we need to be providing better uh, awareness and education for our patients. And it's also one of the hot topics for people who advocate against transgender health. Um, for those, for politicians and practitioners and, and citizens that, that feel like the services we provide are unethical, the main reason that, one of the main reasons that is driving that concern is uh, negative impacts on fertility. And so while I'm generally able to uh, sort of help people understand that those fears are not necessarily warranted. Um, I think that there's a lot more that not only I need to know, but our, our society needs to know about fertility so that we can make sure that we're taking care of the best uh, that we can for these patients. Amen. <laughs> you're, you're, you're basically giving a huge, I mean, this is the thing. You, the, this is why the menstrual cycle physiology is so important to understand. You can't just be like, yeah, it's a menstrual cycle. I don't get it. No, it plays such a role in everything that you do, um, whether it's professionally or even personally. You're going to always encounter some questions or some understanding where you're, you're some situation where you're going to need to understand how the menstrual cycle works and how the brain talks to the ovary and even how the brain talks to the testicle. Um, just to preface, this is a big question. Um, we are a few weeks past the unfortunate death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and we are a few weeks before the 2020 election uh, at this current point last night, actually it was the vice presidential debate when we're recording this. Um, so I ask you um, what you think is our biggest priority for reproductive health as we go into 2021. I think the biggest thing that we need to focus on is making sure that the politicians that are making the quote unquote rules of what can and cannot be done uh, with uh, fertility and gynecologic health uh, need to be with those that are in favor of increasing care and increasing access to high quality care and limiting barriers and minimizing uh, gatekeepers that will prevent people from having access to these services. Um, we know that individuals that have access to uh, unlimited or decreased buried barrier access to birth control and other gynecologic services have higher uh, outcome qualities in terms of not just mental health, but uh, uh, medical health as well, and are able to uh, move forward with their lives in a manner that is up to their choosing. And so I, I think really the main thing that we need to focus on is making sure that the politicians that are helping to make the rules that we live in are those that understand and are able to uh, comprehend the importance of these matters and not make it one about their personal ideologies, religions, and sort of take the politics out of it. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is Christopher Lewis, 
co-director of the transgender clinic here at St. Louis at St. Louis Children's Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, thank you for your time, Dr. Lewis. Thanks as always to my co-host Corey French, um, and we'll see you on the next episode.